0: We just want to give a quick reminder that this podcast is not intended to be legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice. And we encourage you to seek the advice of a professional before making any
1: decisions. I, I want to say Musk said this, that like the good about a recession is that it kind of weeds out all the companies that didn't deserve to survive. How much more successful would you be if you had lunch once a week with insanely successful entrepreneurs who share their biggest secrets on how they think and achieve success? Grab your seat at the table, because this is Business Lunch with Roland Fraser
0: and Ryan Dice. Hey, business owners. I've got a quick question for you. Do you feel like you're missing the data you need to make strong business decisions? If so, it's probably time to build a CEO dashboard. It's an easy way to get everyone in your company literally on the same page, focusing on the numbers that matter. So the Scalable Company put together a free spreadsheet template that will give you everything you need to deploy your own dashboard. And to make it even easier, Ryan Dice recorded a short training on how to use it. If you want to get your hands on the template, go to businesslunchpodcast.com dashboard. That's businesslunchpodcast.com dashboard, and you can download it for free.
1: Hey everybody! Welcome to another episode of Business Lunch with Roland Frazier and Ryan Dice. Ryan, how are you doing today?
0: Well, I'm doing better this week than I have been. You know, you, you and I have a slightly different perspective, maybe, on our investing, right? Like, so you like to keep all of your money tied up in like cash and companies. I, I will more put money in 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 the market. Like, I don't do individual stocks or anything like that, but I'll, I will put money in index funds and, and things like that, just to kind of park it there. And man, it has been brutal uh the last few weeks and i've made the mistake of going in and checking it which is the worst thing to do the only thing dumber than that is is to actually sell you know at this point in time which we talked about in the previous episode but it was nice last week i
1: thought you were supposed to sell the dip i thought that's what i thought that was like what most people did yeah buy the high sell the dip (laughs) that's that's what all the
0: cool kids are doing no that Hopefully, everybody knows that's a joke. This is not investment uh, advice. So anyway, last week, it was better, and, and that made me feel good. But then, two articles came out that I that I saw. One of them talked about how apparently strippers, exotic dancers, whatever you want to say, they, they have decided that that the recession is upon us. It is real because there's considerably less people in men's clubs, I, I, I guess. And apparently, this is something that, that they've seen in the past. And similarly, Yahoo, I'm looking at it right now, Yahoo Finance uh, reported that the fluffy puppy indicator, the fluffy puppy indicator is flashing red for the US economy. And this is apparently, you know, pet stocks and, and uh, just generally how much people are spending on their furry friends is down.
1: Those are indications of like stalls. But you know, the true indication of a recession is when the strippers stop having their puppies fluffed. So that's when, when they stop cleaning their dogs and buying toys from them. Then we're in a recession. That's, uh, that's science.
0: Yeah. So, anyway, I guess long story short, I was happy, and then I read these, and, uh, and and now I'm worried. And basically, I just I'm in this state right now, and it's really healthy for me, where I I essentially let the news cycle dictate my emotions, and I don't see what could go wrong with that.
1: Yeah. No. I mean, hey, that's I, yeah, for a whole week.
0: You can be up, right? That's that's cool. I like it. Well, unless it, unless it, it you know goes drops down. But no, I mean, seriously. So where we are right now, and we talked about this before. I don't. It is really hard to tell. You know, I I was I was pretty convinced, like, hey, it it seems like things are slowing down, right? And and arguably they needed to. Now, slowing down from from where they were at these artificial highs and and pulling back to like the five year average, arguably where it should have been all along, can feel like a slowdown, um, when really it's just kind of where it should be. But I I cannot figure out like, so have we sort of bottomed out to the average and now we're going to continue back? to kind of that upward pace, or is there still more room to fall out of the system? Is there still more, more bottom to be had? And I'm not asking, you know, as a fearful investor or anything like that. I'm asking in terms of like deals. You know deals and things like that. So, what do you think? You got any crystal ball projections?
1: They, yeah, they, and they're worth all, all, all that we are paying each other for this
0: advice, of so these uh, opinions. I worth, say, about about as much as the uh, fluffy puppy indicator or the strip club indicator. Okay,
1: yeah, combined. So, yeah, I, I, it, it's it's interesting to me. Like, uh, at, if you study kind of if you say well 20% basically puts us in into bear ter- territory 20 25% but there's no like official rule it's just kind of a uh, a feeling that everybody has that that's that's an indication of you know of it looking at the other things that are going it it seems Like Everybody is nervous, which is good, because that tends to cause people to slow down just a little bit. And even here, we were out looking at at houses in the Southern California area this weekend. And for the change between just two months ago and now, in terms of The offers that are coming in, no inspection, name your firstborn after the person who's the seller, why you want that, I don't know. And 16 cash offers that are over market with no inspection, no nothing, sight unseen, is now, and by the way, you're going to pay significantly over list price, is now we're seeing price reductions on properties and, I mean, significant ones, you know, 5%, 10%. That hasn't been the case for a while. So that, given the interest rate roughly doubling the mortgage on, you know, rate for a 30-year mortgage over the past few months. That is what generally works very effectively to slow the economy down. And the concern, I think, is that if the Fed keeps going, then they did that in 74. They basically raised rates, raised rates, raised rates, but it, 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 it Basically, threw the economy into a recession. And then we had rallies. There were two 10% rallies, two 8% rallies, and two 7% rallies, but 20 months of bear market. So, so those like up, small bump up weeks can be very maddening for people trying to figure out which way the wind's going to blow. But the bottom line is, is that, yeah, I, what you said initially, I think is all that matters is that the good news for investors is that people who are scared and want out to stop any losses that they are concerned about, they are getting what they want. And so this is something I think is important from a a mindset standpoint, is that you're not taking advantage of people that sell when they're panicking and the market is going down. They actually need to do that for their emotional sanity and security. And so more and more people we see moving in that direction and deals that were commanding higher multiples, I think, are going to fall, particularly in the larger and in the tech sector. But in the small and medium-sized private-owned company, as we talked about, I think, last time, the multiples are actually up. So there are a lot of opportunities for the people who aren't sophisticated sellers who just want to get out now and don't want to go through another recession and have priced accordingly or are flexible to price accordingly. I think there's tremendous opportunity.
0: Yeah, I was talking to somebody who kind of, I don't want to say a friend that makes it sound like we like hang out super socially, a business friend, colleague, who was interested in perhaps selling her to us. And and I didn't, I didn't tell you about this because, you know, the price that she wanted to sell at was so incredibly, I was like, God, like, no, like if you can get it, great, you're not going to get it from us. Well, she just circled back around. And I, I heard through a friend of a friend like, hey, did you hear so and is think about selling their company? I was like, yeah, I heard they were thinking about selling it like a year or so ago. Like, yeah, well, I think now they're getting pretty, you know, interested in in selling it. I still don't know if there's a good enough deal to be had, but I'm betting, I'm betting that it's half of what they were gonna just like knowing kind of where the market is right now, knowing kind of the level of urgency. And I think we're gonna be seeing a lot more of that. So both on the buy side with, you know, with respect to deals, and the other interesting thing that we're seeing is from a labor market perspective, there's considerably less just craziness right now. I saw Harvard Business Review put out this article about kind of what to look for and, you know, how to go about testing a four-day work week, right? And I looked at that and it was was supposed like May 27th. And I'm like, I don't, I wonder if anybody's actually asking for this right now. Like, this is such a a remnant of the, we don't want to come back to work. We don't have to work. The government's giving us all this money. You know, I I don't think I want to have to do that. I cannot imagine right now somebody coming out and being like, you know, well, I'm not going to work unless I mean you're seeing layoffs right now happening at a lot of companies, especially funded startups. Layoffs galore. I can't imagine somebody being like, well, I refuse to to come into work unless you go to a four day, you know, work week kind of thing. You're just not seeing it. So I think for entrepreneurs, especially for bootstrapped, self-funded entrepreneurs who who aren't just overwhelmed by a ton of debt that could be called in any minute, like I think it's gonna be a really good, a really good time. A whole lot of noise is about to get sucked out of the market.
1: Well the I think I want to say Musk said this, that like the good about a recession is that it kind of weeds out all the companies that didn't deserve to survive. And I know we talk about that. I agree 100 percent. This is a great opportunity to get the noise out of the market and the people who are overfunded and spending stupidly and driving ad costs up and and taking labor with crazy salaries and benefits packages and things like that, that they can't sustain because you can't like, so it creates, it does great harm, I think, to the labor market because it tells the labor pool, Hey, you can command these crazy salaries and benefits and things. But the truth is none of that is sustainable and it's only going to damage everybody. If we try to kind of fake sustain it, or, you know, it's, it's all funded from investors who
0: ultimately are going to lose their money. Right. It's, you know, that's a, I think it's a good thing from that standpoint. Yeah, I can't imagine, you know, so as a company, let's say as a company, you're kind of struggling. Like, let's say you're a funded startup, right? And you're struggling. And now you know that growth is probably going to be a little tougher just because there's going to be some compression and spend. You know also that that next round of funding is probably not going to be as easy as the previous one. And if it is, it may be a down round. So you're trying to push it out as far as possible. There's no freaking way you're going to switch to a four-day work week. Right. And this is why you've got to be so careful in the boom times, the really, really good times of just throwing first principles out the window. And I, look, I, I know there's got to be some kind of balance, but this idea that, you know, oh, I really only want to work, you know, 20, 30 hours, you know, a week, but still get paid a full time wage. Cause the, it was funny that if you go and read the Harvard Business Review, they were like, the big problem with the four day work week is employers are basically saying that, okay, you can work just four days instead of five, but they didn't reduce their workload so they basically said you have to work harder in the 4 days and people are like this is this sucks this isn't fair.
1: Let's put 2 hours more a day on each of those 4 days that then it equals the same thing.
0: But but they're saying that's not that's not fair if you do that that doesn't work. Right? That doesn't work. That that and obviously not because nobody's actually going to be productive over an extended period of time, working ten hour days, that's the challenge, yeah, exactly. Right. You're just yeah. not it, it, it sounds
1: kind of actually like it would work, right? It's like, oh, well, you just put two hours more. Yeah, I'll work two hours more a day to have a full you know three day weekend every week, you know, but yeah, the,
0: the big takeaway from the article was basically if you're gonna do the four day work week, you essentially need to reduce your output by twenty percent. Okay, so we're gonna reduce our output by twenty percent at a time when everything just got harder. No, you're dead. Like what just happened is you make the decision to do that. You make the decision to go out of business because your competitor won't because they can't, right? And so it just creates this kind of bizarro, unsustainable, unscalable expectation among the labor force. So I just, for so many reasons, I think this is going to be cleansing. It's going to get a lot of just the absolute noise that is just pure noise. I mean, so many businesses have been started that just sucked. No good products. Man, think about all the craziness. In like the crypto and NFT world, like all the money that's been flowing into that, right? Come on, man! Like that's not going to be normal. So anyway, I think it's long term going to be good. I think as business owners, you know, it's probably going to be a good thing. In the in the meantime, keep you know, don't watch your uh, portfolio too closely. You know, the four hundred one k. I want to get your opinion, by the way, on this Elon Musk Twitter deal from a deals perspective. Not necessarily like is it going to happen, but from a structuring of doing deals. But yeah, I think you're going where I'm going. Before we do that, do you want to show, do we want to show some love to, to one of our sponsors? I think that sounds like a very good idea. Ryan here. And look, if you're an entrepreneur, you're busy. Right, Whether it's replying to emails or scheduling meetings, whatever, there's a lot of work and a lot of hats that we need to wear as entrepreneurs. And that's why as entrepreneurs, especially if you're a visionary founder, you need help right and and I don't know about you but at one point for me I was getting so overwhelmed with all the little day-to-day tasks that let's face it they got to get done but they don't necessarily need to get done by you and so when I came to this realization I said I got to get help I need to get a virtual assistant I got to get a social media manager and that's when I called my friends at Belay Solutions. Belay Solutions are an incredible uh, organization. Now, look, I don't know about you, but I tried to work with VAs in the past. It was always a disaster. And so I was really, really suspicious of being able to to make it work. But their process was fantastic. They found out the type of work that I need done, the type of people I like to work with. And they really did match me with a perfect virtual executive assistant. Uh, And this person's been with me now for three years and counting. So obviously uh, it worked for me and I think it's going to work for you. So here's what you need to do. All right. Uh, the good folks at Belay, they're actually giving listeners to this podcast $300 off the startup costs for their virtual assistant. So you'll pay less than I did. Here's what you need to do text lunch. All right. Text lunch, L U N C H, to 55123. Again, that's text lunch to 55123 to talk to Belay about getting a virtual assistant uh, of your own. You need it. You know you do, and they can make it happen.
1: Awesome. Okay. So, what about Mr. Musk?
0: Yeah, so you were telling me how the way he structured this deal cuz my guess now, I'd give it a 80/20, well, 80% it's not going to happen. Oh, you think you think 80 it's not. I don't think it's I don't think I don't think the Twitter deal with Elon's going to go through. I don't. It seems like the stock is priced as if it is not. <laughs> yeah, it, it seems like it, it seems like it's probably not going to happen, and and um and I'm not going to like speculate on on his sincerity in buying it or was just just pure strategy. I, I don't really know. But the, you were telling me the way that because everybody's like, well, he's got to go through it because if he doesn't go through it, it's going to cost him a billion dollars. Because that was the thing that was reported, right? He put in this offer, but as is the case with almost anything, right? If if you enter into a contract to buy a home and you back out you're gonna lose your earnest money or something like that and in this case the quote unquote earnest money was a billion dollars but the way that he structured the contract was such that you think he's probably gonna get out of that so I'd love to get your kind of insight on that and and what this could mean for somebody if they're looking to do maybe a smaller deal than let's say acquiring Twitter
1: yes I was gonna look so um, I was trying to see the market cap of Twitter right now i see it's trading at 40 and i think wasn't his offer at like 54 oh there it is so the market cap of twitter right now if you bought every share is 30.7
0: billion yeah 30.7 billion
1: a full 14 billion or 13 three less than his buyout offer so if you think about it i mean just like straight math if if you could buy it out for its current market cap you would be well advised to lose the billion, say, screw that deal. I want a new deal. I'll pay the billion and I'll still buy it. And you would still save 12.3 billion. So like just straight off the top, that's an interesting thing to think about. Right. The, And then the next thing to think about is that what he really did, it was actually really smart. And what's funny is it's, it's one of the kind of contrarian ways that we look at, at how we, make offers to people. So he did, he said a billion dollars is the breakup fee, but I'm not going to require any due diligence. I'm going to require, I'm going to rely 100% on publicly available information provided that that information is correct. And the board said, cool. Right. And what it effectively did, I think is it gave him, it gave him a billion dollar option to buy at $44 billion, number one, if that was something that he decided made sense. Number two, if the market dropped dramatically as it has, he'd be better off to take the billion dollar loss and go ahead and buy it at the lower amount and still be billions and billions ahead. And number three, though, that's super, super cool about what he did was it was all he has to do is find some publicly available information that is not accurate to get out of the billion also, and then go buy it for $30 billion and save $14 billion, right? So that to me is is pretty amazing because he, they, they found, and I don't know if they had this as a thing, but it was mentioned early on, how many fake, how many bot accounts exist. And if there's a certain number of them that were estimated, but then that estimate was very low, that would create a significant deviation in the publicly available
0: information from the you know, the actual and therefore give them a. And I think Twitter's estimate is it was 5%. Yeah. And I think he's saying it's. Which anybody who's ever used Twitter is like, that seems low, quite low, you know? Right.
1: So, so really for him, it was a pretty safe bet because I would bet that some smart attorney or investment banker or he himself was thinking, you know what, we got this in our back pocket just in case we need it. And you know what? If, if there are only 5% accounts, that are fake then maybe it's a maybe it's a good deal at 44 but this gives us an out our biggest exposure is a billion but the truth is i don't even think we have that and so maybe what we do is we go in we find out we then get everything that we want maybe they make some changes on the board maybe some people leave maybe they you know do put us on who knows but then effectively for no money out of pocket you know we get the ability to have had a look at it And see if it makes sense. And then when it returns back to the thirties and forties where it ought to trade and where it had traded, we just buy it like that. And by the way, he still owns his, you know, his percentage that he bought. That's kind of interesting,
0: I think. So just mathematically, statistically speaking, most of our listeners are not Elon Musk. I disagree. Uh, I don't know to be true, but I believe it to be true. Research on that, or you're just yes. I'm I'm just guessing. I'll be honest. Most of them are not. (laughs) Yeah, I think we have more than two, and I'm not sure Elon (laughs) even listens. But anyway, so for those who are not Elon Musk, but maybe they're doing you know deals. I mean, we talk a lot about you know buying and selling of small businesses. You've got an entire training course. We've got whole accelerators groups on. You know, we help people buy and sell businesses. We do it. What. What are some tips based on kind of this Elon Musk strategy? How how can people do more deals like Elon where you got this awesome opportunity if it works out and if it doesn't, you have basically no downside?
1: Yeah, what we teach with, which is kind of, it's a little bit against the common expectation, the common way of doing things, right? Is that typically they say, Let's go in, let's see. A, let's find a company we're interested in, and then let's agree on some rough terms and then do a bunch of due diligence to agree that the things that represented actually are the case before we close the deal. But because of the way that we typically do deals, we typically will structure where you don't have to come out of pocket. We're letting the assets of the company and seller financing and earnouts and things like that all pay for the company. And so if you're not bringing in third party capital, and you're not personally liable, and you're using an entity like a special purpose vehicle to go in, that's just basically any company you use only for the purpose of the acquisition, then you effectively can say, you know what, I'm going to get all of the representations and warranties, all the things that I expect to be true about the company, I want the seller to say that they're true in the document, then we can go ahead and close the deal. And we'll do the due diligence after because in the agreement, we'll have the right to offset. And we won't have just given the seller a pile of cash to write off in the sunset that we'll probably never get back if things aren't the way they were represented. Instead, we're saying, hey, seller, why don't you have some skin in the game and, and finance part of this yourself? And then we'll, we could offset if we find something that's not true. We might be using the assets of the company itself to provide some of the funding. Or we might have the seller wait to receive money based on the performance of the company in the future over the next couple of years, which is called an earnout. And so when you're using those types of things, you can close deals really quickly and avoid the breakup fee that basically is implied because you have to pay accountants and attorneys a bunch of money to go through the financial statements and the documents and stuff of the company. You can skip all that stuff and say, hey. These are the things that must be true for me to continue to go forward with the deal after we close, close the deal, and then you have the deal done so you know that it's going to close, you know that it's, you know, it's done, and then have your accountants and attorneys do whatever they need to do to make you happy. And if you find that something isn't as represented, you basically get to say, I'm going to offset that against what? we owe under the various financing terms that we did. So you're really not risking any of your capital or any investor capital, and you're getting to know that the deal is going to actually happen before you run up attorney and accountant fees. I think that's the big thing that 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 you can get out of this. So he did that in a very clever way, and it's it was validating for us because that's actually kind of how we teach to do it.
0: Yeah. And I know another thing that we do, and this is, it doesn't have all the same protection of what you talked about, but it's something that I've heard you say, and it's, it's pretty common when you're dealing with institutional uh, buyers is your, your offer can be based on a, on a multiple of EBITDA or based on a multiple of, you know, earnings or something like that. So as opposed to saying, I'm going to buy it for X, it's, I'm going to get it for this multiple based on this number. And then if that number winds up being wrong or different, then you know, the number changes well. Now I guess that you know, if it winds up being wrong to the high side, then then that could may, perhaps be problematic. but that's only never the case, right? It, this isn't it, like
1: it's really funny though, because we do use that and it actually was in a deal that we were buying a big company in Australia that was operating in Australia and New Zealand. and we had agreed on everything and all of the legal and accounting and all that was done but, and we had agreed on the multiple of EBITDA, but the EBITDA came in significantly lower when the audited financials got released for the most recent quarter. And it caused the price to fall to the extent that the seller basically backed out of the deal. And so we still ended up, all of the flights to go to Australia and fly over the country and New Zealand to do the checking out, meeting with accountants, attorneys, all that stuff. And all the time, it was about six months of time, all got wasted because the seller, you know, if it fell below a certain level, the seller was able to have an out. In this this way of doing things, that wouldn't happen. And so we would not have lost the money that we lost there. So I kind of like this better.
0: That's That's really why we do it the way that I'm mentioning these days. And and in this case, it's not, uh, you know, it's because you're basically allowing the business to kind of fund itself, what what you, you know, teach, what you talk about in the Epic Accelerator, right? Correct. Yeah. 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 So kind of cool. Very cool. And and I think, you know, it's fun to look at these examples, people like Elon Musk and and to just see it as a news story. But as entrepreneurs, y'all, there's, (laughs) look, there may be more zeros attached to the end of these deals, but it's amazing how similar they are. Right, business is still business. People are still people. Deals are still deals. And so, yes, look at it to a certain extent for the entertainment value, fine. But also look at it for the lessons that can be learned. I think when it comes to getting in and out of these deals, making sure that you've got those protections is going to be is going to be really an important thing for anybody who's out there doing these kind of deals. Also, understanding the types of requests that might be made if you're the the one on the sell side.
1: Yeah, and and so it, it's on the buy side. I think the takeaway is you can do due diligence after the fact, and if you do, it can protect you against having a seller that wants to back out of the deal because the deal will already be closed, and then you're just in an offset situation. The other takeaway would be don't put yourself in a situation where something that you could find out wasn't the case is greater than the amount of the offset that would want you to still you know, that would make it still a doable deal for you on the sell side, be careful to not like in this case, I think the board was kind of surprised at Twitter that they thought they had this breakup fee. And so they agree on this. And then I don't think they thought about the fact that the stock price might go down to the point where the breakup fee would be inconsequential to the buyer. You know, in this case, Musk's like, I can make, uh 14 billion or lose a billion. So it's like that's kind of a no-brainer for him. I would eat that breakup fee every single time and go back to the table again. But as the board, you got to be careful because is that a good move? And and actually I think that board may have opened themselves up to some liability from the shareholders because there's like did you did you get enough? You know, was that a big enough fee? And and they did a lot of things like allowing that out of relying on the public information for, a pub, you know, for that company, that was a pretty crafty thing that he did. So be careful as a seller that you actually have the deal that you think you have and that you don't provide outs that would allow somebody to take a look, let the world know, and then maybe go back and have a second bite at the apple.
0: Yeah, certainly don't provide outs for data that either you know you don't have or if you do, because they're, they're saying that they do have it, they're just not willing to give it to them. Right. So certainly don't provide outs on data that you're not willing to provide, you know, unless who knows, maybe they, you know, the board sitting there going muhaha as well, because they never wanted this deal to happen either. They just wanted to be able to show that, oh, we tried. We upheld our fiduciary into the bargain and and everybody just goes back to their respective corners. I think the, the big takeaway for us is deals are not risky if you structure them properly, deals, like doing deals, acquisitions can be one of the fastest, least risky ways to to scale based on everything, you know, and the stuff that you don't know. If you're smart, you structure the right way, you can put little provisions in place to make sure that those don't come out and bite you too hard. Exactly. Hey, Roland, if somebody likes all this deal stuff, and they want to do deals like like Elon, yeah, where could they go to learn uh, how to do those kind of things?
1: Well, what a fantastic question. They could go to the so we basically have uh, a challenge that we run. At, and typically, it's every month or so. And it's called the get it's called the epic challenge. It's at getepicchallenge.com. You can definitely go there and check it out. Or you can go to the website where we have our trainings, which is ethically So it's all about how we do these deals, how we do acquisitions with little or no money out of pocket. And it's really funny because Ryan and I were talking the other day and it's like, we were both sitting on quite a bit of cash and, and it's like in anticipation of doing some deals. And we just kept not needing the cash because of how we do the deals. And so it, it, it's kind of funny that you really, I mean, there are traditional deals and we have a program that's coming out to talk about that. But the truth is, is like for us in the, these private companies that we've been buying, it very often just doesn't take any money as long as you know all of the different financing sources. And we've got about 221 of them we've identified now. So if that is something that you're interested in uh, playing with, you should definitely check out getepicchallenge.com and ethicallyprofit.com. And if you like the podcast, you should maybe think about subscribing so you don't miss out on any of the issues and you might want to leave us a five-star review just saying that you do actually enjoy the kinds of things we talk about. With that, Brian, unless you have anything else, I think we'll sign off for today. What if three days could change the course of your business in 2023? Get Scalable Live is where you'll gain great clarity on the next steps that will help you create the business, life, and wealth you deserve. Connect with business owners and entrepreneurs just like you, hungry for advice, proven strategies, and necessary connections to grow a business. Literally, million-dollar conversations are happening in the hallways, in the bathrooms, (laughs) across tables. Get Scalable Live at Fairmont Austin, November 2nd through 4th. Tickets are on sale now at GetScalableLive.com.